Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good afternoon. Uh, by way of explanation, uh, Justice Irvin has unfortunately uh, potentially been exposed uh, to COVID, hence the mask. Uh, our last case of today is State versus Dover, and we will hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is Ben Zane. I'm an Assistant Attorney General with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. I request to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. At trial, the jury found the defendant guilty of first-degree murder under both a premeditation and deliberation framework as well as a felony murder framework. The underlying felony uh, conviction was robbery with a dangerous weapon, and the jury found the defendant guilty of that as well. The defendant appealed the trial court's denial of his motion to dismiss the charges, as well as the trial court's denial of his motion for a mistrial to the Court of Appeals. There, the Court of Appeals majority held for the defendant, and the state appealed that decision based on the dissent. I'll take those issues in turn, starting with the sufficiency of the evidence to survive a motion to dis dismiss. It is well established in our law that a defendant's motion to dismiss is properly denied when there is substantial evidence of each element of the offense and that the defendant is the one who committed the offenses. The court must view the evidence in the light most favorable to the state and granting the state every reasonable inference from the evidence. All of the evidence in this case, taken in the light most favorable to the state, gives rise to a reasonable inference of the defendant's guilt on the charges in this case. The Court of, uh, of Appeals majority opinion noted that the state's evidence established the defendant's opportunity to commit the charged offenses. But as I argue here before you today, the evidence shows much more than that. It shows the defendant's motive. It shows uh, the defendant had knowledge uh, after the fact and that the defendant concealed or tried to conceal his actions from law enforcement. And those things taken together uh, indicate that the essential elements of the crimes have been met sufficient to survive a motion to dismiss as well as that uh, the defendant is the one who perpetrated those offenses. Uh, I'll start by running through some of the, the, the factual basis uh, for the charges. So first, we have that the victim carried a large amount of cash uh, and that he ha usually carried it in, a, in his pocket or in a wallet. Uh, and in fact, the day that the victim was found deceased, he was supposed to meet his daughter at 7 o'clock that morning uh, in order to provide her with money or loan her money. And the police search of the victim's residence found no money, uh, no cash, uh, when, as I said, the evidence indicates that he always had money, always had cash. The evidence also showed that the defendant uh, used cocaine or struggled with a cocaine addiction and that the defendant was frequently borrowing money uh, from his boss, from the victim, and from others. Uh, and there was testimony at trial that the defendant was increasing, like, increasing the rate at which he was borrowing money in the days and months or days and weeks leading up to the murder. There's evidence that the victim told the defendant that he was cut off from borrowing money. Uh, and 
There's also evidence that the defendant took drastic steps to, to, to secure money. There's evidence that the defendant took parts, car parts from his employer, he was a mechanic by trade, took car parts from his employer and took them back to the shop and returned them and kept the money uh, in doing so. And for that, the defendant nearly lost his job, nearly lost uh, a source of income. There's also evidence that the defendant's power was about to be cut off for non-payment of, of those bills. And there's evidence that the defendant owed his boss $300 on the day that the victim was found murdered. In contrast to all of that, there's evidence that the defendant is found, uh, well, that money is found in the defendant's possession uh, based on defendant's jailhouse phone call. Uh, that money was found in a glove, th nearly $3,000 cash found in a glove. Found in a, uh, the glove was in turn placed inside a McDonald's bag, which was placed inside the trash can outside of his uh, girlfriend's mother's residence across the street from where he lived. What do you have to say about the defendant's position on that particular uh, matter, that there was nothing to tie the defendant to that uh, cash relative to the elements of the offense charged? Yes, Your Honor. So the, the cash itself there, the, is not tied to the defendant based on like marked, or not tied to the victim based on like markings on bills or any kind of DNA evidence or anything like that, Your Honor. Uh, the state acknowledges that and it acknowledged that at the time of the motion to dismiss, uh, I believe. But the fact remains that a reasonable inference from the location where that money was found, how it was kept, uh, is that the defendant did not want that money discovered by others, that the defendant didn't want that money found. Uh, and, and there are other reasonable inferences that could be. Was there any evidence in this case that uh, the victim was missing a substantial amount of money and that the fact that there was this $3,000 cash found to tie that directly to the victim or is it just the circumstantial evidence that is replete in this case? I think it's the circumstantial evidence, Your Honor. I, just to, to summarize it briefly, it's that the victim was uh, known to deal with large quantities of cash and that the victim was going at 7 o'clock that morning he was found deceased, was going to give his daughter money at 7, at 7 o'clock that morning. And when uh, he's found deceased and the uh, police check the residence, there's no cash whatsoever to be found. Uh, so, so whether it's uh, a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars, uh, the, the fact that the, the, the victim wasn't found with any cash at all and that the defendant um, who uh, doesn't just generally lack cash but specifically lacked cash uh, I, there's also evidence, Your Honor, that the defendant had called the victim the night uh, of the murder in an effort to borrow money from the victim. In fact, the defendant tells police that he was calling the victim that night to borrow money from the, the victim. And uh, so, again, we don't have just a generalized, uh, generalized need for money on the part of this defendant. It's a specific need for money in response to, to his circumstances, his addiction, uh, and that's that's the evidence that, that ties the money, in this case, to the victim. So was there any forensic or other kind of um, evidence that connected the defendant to the inside of the victim's residence? Uh, not, not that I recall from the, the case, Your Honor. Not that, I, not that I definitively saw. There were definitely, uh, the state conducted a, a variety of forensic tests, and, and the evidence in trial shows that, and that was offered uh, to the jury as well uh, as evidence of what the state did to investigate the offense. 
but as I recall from the evidence, Your Honor, I don't recall any specific <coughs> Uh, forensic evidence leading to a connection uh, one way or the other on that. Were there cell phone records? Yes, Your Honor. There were, there were cell phone records, and those come into the picture in, an, in a number of ways. So first, the defendant uh, told police that he, stayed, he got home at 8 or 9 o'clock that night, the night of the murder, and that he uh, stayed home that night. That was his initial uh, statement to police. However, the cell phone records uh, indicated that the uh, that the defendant had not done that, that the defendant, in fact, was out and about that night. And not only out and about, but out and about in an area of town that included the uh, victim's residence. Additionally, this, the record showed that the defendant called the victim three times that night, as I alluded to earlier. Uh, and the defendant told police that those calls were for the purpose of getting money from the victim that night. He was calling the victim to borrow money that very evening, that very night. Not only that, but the defendant blocked his number so it wouldn't show on the victim's caller ID for several of those calls, the last two. And then, in addition to that, when the defendant uh, allowed police to search his phone, police found that there weren't, the call logs had been deleted, that there weren't call logs stored in the, in the defendant's phone showing those calls. There were call logs showing other more recent calls, but not, the, not call logs from, from before, basically, the police's interaction with the defendant. Again, a reasonable inference from that is that the phone is capable of storing that, that, those call logs, but those call logs aren't there because the defendant didn't want them to be there. Uh, and so that speaks to, again, not just the defendant's motive, uh, as I've talked about before, but also that he was attempting to conceal his actions from law enforcement at the time. But the cell phone pings were in the same area, not only as the victim's residence, but also uh, Terry's auto sales, where the defendant was known to spend major quantities of his time is that right the you're, you're right your honor in that the the cell phone pings the location wasn't specific to the victim's residence and it did include the part of town that also included the the shop that they both worked at yes your honor the one of the last facts that I wanted to uh, highlight for the court was the morning of the the murder uh, when the victim's daughter called the shop to figure out why her, her dad hadn't met the, the 7 o'clock meeting with her, um, the defendant is the one who picked up the phone and answered that call. And this is about 8 o'clock the morning that the victim is found. The victim's body wasn't discovered until closer to 9.30 that morning when the 911 call was placed. So at the time that the victim's daughter calls the shop, she asks the defendant if the victim, her father, is there at work. And the def defendant tells her that he's not effing there anymore. Uh, and that's, that's, that's his, his language, according to the victim's daughter. And, and specifically, the word anymore, in the context of the rest of the evidence, the rest of the evidence shows that the victim hadn't been at work at all that morning. So the fact that the defendant's saying that he's not there anymore, uh, a reasonable inference from that is that he's not talking about the defendant not being present at work. He's talking about the defendant being deceased or, or not present on earth anymore. And so, again, we, we ask that that be considered as, as knowledge uh, on the part of the defendant. That's at a time, again, where the victim's body had not yet been found, the 911 call had not yet been made, uh, and so the defendant couldn't know that unless the defendant is the one who, who did, in fact, murder the victim in this case. Assuming that you can draw some inferences from the deletion of the text log or call logs and the um, comment from the defendant on the phone um, and the cell phone pings um, that sh might show guilty knowledge or um, 
in the vicinity of where this happened. What are the strongest inferences that the state can draw in terms of the elements of these offenses? Yes, Your Honor. So, so turning to the elements of the offenses, I mean, for, I think the best way of thinking about the case, Your Honor, is that the elements of the offenses are fairly apparent from the victim's condition, right? The, the, in other words, the elements of, of murder and the elements of ro a robbery with a dangerous weapon are, are apparent from the victim being found with the number of wounds that he had, the nature of those wounds. We're talking knife wounds here. There's no, I don't think there's any consideration that this is a, like a suicide or anything but a murder, uh, Your Honor. And so those essential elements are imparted by the condition of the, of the victim. However, uh, as far as identifying the, the victim, at, or correction, identifying the defendant as the source of those uh, wounds, that's where you turn to the analysis of opportunity motive uh, and knowledge of things that he shouldn't have known unless he was the murderer and his attempts to conceal things from, from law enforcement. So I guess, Your Honor, to answer your question, there isn't, I, I don't think that there's a, if you're, insofar as you're asking me for a single definitive piece of evidence that pushes this case over the edge, I, I, there's not one single piece of evidence that, that I'm willing to point to as that single piece, Your Honor. Uh, I, the cases uh, that are cited to by us, I believe it's State v. Stone is, is one that talks about the evidence being considered as a whole, especially in cases of circumstantial evidence. And so, uh, you know, State acknowledges that th this case is one primarily of circumstantial evidence, and so it has to be taken, th those pieces have to be taken together uh, as opposed to independently. Um, as far as what, what is strong evidence, strong circumstantial evidence, um, the, the most probative things are the, the, the defendant's financial uh, woes going into the situation, going into that evening, not, not just generally, but going into that evening specifically, uh, going into that time, uh, and then his reliance on the victim for, as a source of money, uh, the victim cutting him off as a, you know, cutting off that source of money to him, uh, and then the victim, again, uh, possessing a large quantity of money but being found with no money whatsoever when he's supposed to meet his daughter at 7 a.m. Uh, those are some of the strongest facts, in addition to some of the ones that I've outlined already, Your Honor. So I'll turn to the second issue, unless the, the court had any additional issues on the, the first part with sufficiency of the evidence, the second issue being the defendant's motion for mistrial. Can I ask you, I do have a question about the sufficiency of the evidence. Yes, Your Honor. Um, there was also medical examiner evidence about the um, time of death. And how does that relate to some of the other circumstantial evidence? And by that I mean, I believe I'm, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but that the, that the medical examiner testified that the death occurred within eight hours of the body being moved? Right, am I correct about so that? So I believe that one of the two medical or one of the two medical experts testified as that. I can't recall whether it was the states or the, the defendants, but but, but yes, Your Honor, some, one, a person did, a medical expert did testify as to that. Well, well, so from your perspective, in taking the evidence in the light most favorable to state, what is the medical, medical examiner's evidence and how does it relate to some of the other circumstantial evidence? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, so I believe both medical uh, examiners testified that the injuries received by the victim in this case would not have killed the victim quickly, unfortunately. Uh, and, and so I think that that really muddies the water when it comes to the, the value of the medical evidence in this case. In other words, evidence of the defendant being at the victim's residence at a particular moment in time becomes less valuable when the, defendant's, or the victim's death becomes, becomes different from that time. Uh, and so 
Um, I, guess, I guess what I would say, Your Honor, is that that eight hours, um, in other words, the defendant being there at a certain time that night, if he, if he, when he stabbed the victim, the victim dying later on that night was consistent with the medical testimony in light most favorable to the state. Uh, and so uh, the timeline is, is muddled based on that, Your Honor. Uh, and I think that that's the only, the only way I, I can address that question based on the evidence in the record. So I'll move to the, the second issue, which is the motion for a mistrial. Uh, in the prosecutor's closing statement, uh, and this is the, the final closing, this was the final closing statement in this evidence. The prosecutor waived initial closing, the defendant participated in his closing, and then the prosecutor took up the final closing. Uh, in that final closing, the defendant objected to a statement by the prosecutor, and the trial court sustained the objection. Uh, and the defendant did not ask for a curative instruction. The prosecutor then rephrased the, uh, the, the assertion that he had made uh, and repeated it, and the defendant did not object to that rephrased and repeated assertion. Uh, shortly after that, the trial court instructed the jury on the presumption of innocence when it instructed the jury generally uh, on the presumption of innocence and the state's burden to prove the case. I just wanted to touch primarily on the, much was made in the briefs about different legal arguments we made here, but I, I want to touch primarily on the context in which the prosecutor's statement was made in, in closing. The prosecutor, shortly before the objection, was talking about the defendant's uh, and, it, and his efforts to explain things to police, and that every time the defendant was telling something to police, the police would check up on it and find that it wasn't the case, that it wasn't true. And uh, in fact, he said, the problem is that every time they went to check on something the defendant told, had told them it was a lie and everyone else was telling the truth. Everything checked out, but nothing he had to say checked out and he's telling you a ridiculous thing. That's what the prosecutor said right before saying what the defense objected to in this closing argument. And so in that context, the prosecutor is talking about um, whether or not the defendant's statements to police had been verified by police. One of the things that the police had talked to the defendant about was where his money had come from. They, they, they witnessed him with money on the day that they were interviewing him and they asked him about where he got the money. And his explanation was that he had gotten it from a particular customer who had just paid him that morning. Uh, and in fact, when police ran that down, or as evidence at trial later showed, um, that customer had paid the uh, defendant several days prior, uh, during which time the defendant had testified about spending money on various other things. Uh, and so, that's the context of the prosecutor's statement here uh, when it's being evaluated in terms of, uh, I know defendant argue, it will argue that, uh, has argued in the brief that there's, there's a prejudicial effect from the prosecutor's statement, but the prosecutor's statement was more geared towards qualifying the evidence rather than uh, a statement about burdens or burden shifting or anything to that effect. Additionally, I, I want to touch on some of the cases that the defendant's citing in that uh, part of, of their brief as distinguishable. Um, the defense cites to, to Maynard and Garner for the proposition that uh, a, court, a trial court must give an immediate curative instruction and that is the only way to solve uh, any kind of uh, error in, in a prosecutor's closing uh, statement. Uh, but if you look at those cases themselves, uh, there, there are instances where the prosecutor makes an objectionable statement the objection is sustained without a curative instruction, and then later on the prosecutor makes another objectionable statement. It's only at that point that a curative instruction is given. At that point, the curative instruction is no longer immediate as to the first objection, uh, but uh, nonetheless, the court, this court determined that those, those other objections were not, uh, those other uh, objectionable statements were not prejudicial to the, to the point of requiring a mistrial. 
Uh, and so that we asked the court examine those, those cases cited carefully, uh, in addition to the case that we cited, uh, which is Peterson, uh, showing a case where a trial court, this court found that the trial court's curative instruction was not, did not in fact cure the, the error in the, in the case, but then went on to rule that the error wasn't prejudicial uh, enough to require reversal or, mis or uh, a new trial. So uh, that's, that's what I had on both of those issues. I don't know if the court has any other questions for me at this time, otherwise I will save the remainder of my time in rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, my name is Marilyn Ozer. I'm here for a change for the appellee, uh, David Dover. And I would like to start out with the other view of the evidence. The state had no direct evidence. In response to some of the questions, there was blood, uh, swabs of blood taken from Mr. Davis's house where there was a lot of blood around from the floors, from um, Mr. Davis, from the, from the door. None of that blood uh, came from Mr. Dover. They then went to Mr. Dover's house and were excited, I think, because they walked up on his porch and they saw blood on the porch. Then they went in the house and they found blood on Mr. Dover's blue jeans. So they thought they had their man. And I think at that point, the investigation basically stops. But unfortunately, as far as looking for a different suspect, unfortunately for the state, when they sent these blood swabs to, um, to the labs, no match. Nothing from Mr. Davis's trailer was a match for Mr. Dover including they went under his fingernails because they assumed that he had grabbed at whoever was assaulting him. That was not a match for Mr. Davis. Then they did Mr. Davis's, uh, Mr. Dover's, I'm sorry, they both start with D, so I'm confusing them. Uh, Mr. Dover's blue jeans, uh, they checked in his truck. They pulled up the swabs of blood from his porch all of that blood was a match for Mr. Dover. And what he explained was he's a car mechanic. He gets cut, he bleeds. And that's what the SBI reports showed. All of the blood in Mr. Dover's house was a match for Mr. Dover. They hoped that when they found this uh, money, which was in a glove inside a McDonald's bag, I think it was also inside something else. There was a piece of paper in there. They were hoping that they would find a match for Mr. Davis' DNA there. They did not. The uh, SBI lab could not find any match, DNA match on the money or the notes in the glove that it had rubbed against that was a match for Mr. Davis. So the DNA evidence and the blood was a complete washout. There was also, of course, no direct evidence of a witness. There was no confession. He talked to the police for a long time and he denied consistently that he had done any of it. 
uh, the evidence that they did have for time of death, there were two forensic medical examiners. One of them was the pathologist who um, did the autopsy of Mr. Davis. The other one was Dr. Thomas Owens, who is a well-known chief medical examiner out of Charlotte, works for the state. He was testifying for the defendant that day. And, what, and it was Dr. Owens that explained lividity, that a body, uh, that the blood in, in your body, I, I hate discussing this, um, settles after eight hours. And before the eight hours, if you move the body, the blood's going to move. And you can see that in the autopsy, in the autopsy photos, whether the blood has moved or not. And in this case, it had not moved at 12.30 when they finally moved the body. So according to Dr. Owens, death could not have occurred before 4 a.m. And going um, to the point of well, maybe it's messed up because he didn't die right away. Dr. Owens was asked, how long could a 79-year-old man have lived after losing that much blood? And what he says on page 1008 is it could have been as long as 30 minutes, that's the outside, could have been as short as five to 10 minutes. So we're not talking hours. And what the state needs is hours, because they stopped checking the cell phone records at 1.30 a.m. I, I don't understand why, but they did. And according to the lividity of the body, he wasn't dead before 4 a.m. So that's- well, is, is that light most favorable to the state? Well, that's something that I, I was thinking about. What is light most favorable for to the state if they provide no evidence. The state didn't ask their pathologist what was the time of death. And when they were cross-examining Dr. Owens, which would have been the perfect time for the state to find out about this lividity, was it valid, what were the parameters, they didn't ask one question about lividity. What they asked on the cross of Dr. Owens was about the blood puddles that had um, been tracked from the living room where Mr. Davis was supposedly stabbed to his bedroom. And that's the only question. So in that case, I'm not sure what evidence in the light most favorable to the state is because they didn't put on any evidence through their own pathologist and when they had a chance to cross Dr. Owens, they didn't. But what, what is the standard for light most favorable? How do, how do we look at evidence in the light most favorable? Well, you look at it in the light most favorable to the evidence that the state has presented. So is the evidence you're discussing the light most favorable to the state? Yes, because it's the only evidence. The state did not put on any evidence of time of death. And the other evidence that the state did put on inadvertently is Terry Bunn goes into the house at 9.30 a.m. He breaks into the house at 9.30 a.m., finds his friend on the floor, calls 911 and says, I think he's still breathing, or I'm not sure, he may be still breathing. Now, if Mr. Davis had, um, 
become deceased around 11 or midnight when the state's cell phone records are being checked, he would have been in full rigor mortis because full rigor mortis sets in by eight hours and we're past eight hours by 9.30 in the morning. And there's no way Mr. Bunn could have looked at his friend and thought he's still breathing if he was in full rigor mortis. So the state has put on that evidence that no, he had died more re closer to 9.30 than the cell phone records that the state makes such a big deal of. And that's really the only, I don't see any other evidence in the record about time of death other than you can kind of infer from the state's asking the cell phone expert to stop checking at 1.30 that the state thinks the murder took place before 1.30. But I looked and I, I couldn't find any reason why. And uh, defense counsel asked, actually asked that question. Why did you stop at 1.30? And the cell phone expert says, because I was told to. So those are two pieces of evidence. And I think in the light most favorable to the state, you have to look at evidence. And the state didn't put on any and didn't try to contradict it. Following up on Justice Berger's question about looking at the state's evidence in the light most favorable, each case stands on its own unique facts. But in a case like this one, to the extent you can help us in terms of a bright line rule, if one can emanate from this case, where do we draw the line between a case that is like this one, purely on circumstantial evidence, uh, and yet uh, a case as well where, as in all criminal cases, there is a low threshold for the state's opportunity here to have the evidence looked in the light most favorable to it? Well, um, if you look at this, what the state refers to as circumstantial evidence, either singly or combined, it doesn't rise to any level that's enough to have a reasonable inference of what it's supposed to um, show. For, for example, going back to the cell phone, we know Mr. Dover was in his house at one point because the cell phone shows that. The next sector includes both Terry's auto sales, where Mr. Dover was known to be late at night working for his own clients, the drug house where we know he was several times that night, and Mr. Davis's uh, home. Now, in most cases that you look at and you call it circumstantial evidence, you have the client there at the place of the murder. In this case, you have a large sector and two of the places where you know he was. So it's not a reasonable inference to say, okay, and we think he was at a third place. That's conjecture, that's suspicion, that's not a reasonable inference. So to get to that bright line you want, you have to get, get to a reasonable inference. You have to be above suspicion and conjecture. Another thing the state points out, I don't think in the reply brief, is that they think it was the defendant because there was no evidence that the house was broken into. 
Now, that's contradicted by the state's own evidence because Terry Bunn, who arrives there in the morning, uh, knocks on the door, it's locked, he looks around, finds a piece of metal, uses that piece of metal to try to pry the door open, and that didn't work, so he keeps looking around, finds a screwdriver, and opens the door with a screwdriver. So that leads you to two conclusions. Either they didn't do a very good investigation because they've got their own witness saying he broke in, or they, um, or they're just not telling the truth. And, and the other strange thing about that is another detective later on testifies, yeah, I noticed there was damage to that door, but I didn't pay much attention to it. I think that's page 780, I can check it. So their own, one of their own detectives says that he noticed damage, but he didn't bother investigating. And certainly, if you didn't think you already had your suspect in jail because of the blood you found at his house, you would be getting fingerprints from that door that was jimmied open. You would have tried to figure out how it was done. Uh, but they didn't do that. So, so that's not circumstantial evidence. It's not even a reasonable inference. It's a s suspicion that it was David Dover because he knew the, uh, Mr. Mr. Davis knew him and would have just opened the door and let him in. In terms of the uh, defendant's depiction of there being no nexus between uh, the cash that was discovered, the some $3,000, and the fact that he, as the defendant, had a habit uh, of a drug nature, constantly was looking for funds in small quantities, never seemed to have any money, but now there's this big quantity of money that was discovered by virtue of the jailhouse call. With the state being entitled to every reasonable inference uh, in terms of what is favorable to it, what would be your response to, again, the discussion which you and I are having concerning where to draw a line? If the state's entitled to that kind of favorable treatment vis-a-vis -vis what you say would be mere speculation, I'll just direct you to what the state said at trial. The trial court, after the motion to dismiss, asked the state, was there any testimony that Mr. Davis had $3,000 or anything was missing from his home? Mr. Taylor, no. Then he questioned the DA about uh, the fact that Mr. Davis was known to be giving loans to Mr. Dover and to others and asked about the amounts, and the state admitted 20 or $30. The court then says, if Mr. Davis is regularly giving out loans in the 20 to 30 to however much range, that's a far cry from $3,000. That's on pages 936 and 940. So the state itself at trial says there is no evidence that Mr. Davis had $3,000 in $100 bills in his possession. So I don't think it's a reasonable inference to not believe what the prosecutor tells the judge at the trial. But if you just want to go into flipping it and having Mr. Dover prove where that $3,000 came from, there is evidence, even the state has evidence, that 
he could have been collecting money. He had um, his own clients. Mr. Bunn says that he had use of the car lot after work for whatever he wanted, so he had his own clients he was collecting money from. Mr. Bunn pays him under the table. Uh, the state put on the witness that said he took him to an ATM and gave him $100 bills. And it's, it's very difficult to put yourself in the shoes of someone like Mr. Dover because that's not how we live. But to try to explain it, if you, if you had a Christmas savings account or a college fund for your children, you wouldn't be taking money out of that to pay other bills. And Mr. Dover might have been saving that money for something. And he could, the state shows how he could have collected that money. He got it from clients. Or as the trial court says also in this same motion to dismiss, if somebody stopped someone in a car and found $100 bills in a sock, they would presume drug sales. And that's what you would presume. And, and to get beyond that, to get beyond the fact that Mr. Dover had reasons for saving money and not using it for other things, the state would at minimum have to show that Mr. Davis had that kind of money in $100 bills in his possession. And they don't show it. His, his daughter, the one that accuses Mr. Dover of being impolite to her when she calls that morning, uh, says, responds to the state's question, uh, did, miss, did your father carry large amounts of cash? She says, yes. But then this woman from Ireland, who's Mr. Davis's girlfriend, which is fun since he's 79, and I presume she's older too, but they're a couple. And she goes out to lunch with him, dinner with him, goes dancing with him, goes on trips with him, and the state asked the same question. Did Mr. Davis carry large amounts of money? And she says, no, he did not carry large amounts of money. And Mr. Bunn, the other person who the state gets to call large amounts of money, ties it to buying used cars or buying a motorcycle. And there's no evidence that any of that was in the works. And, and Mr. Davis, who is a wonderful person from everything you read in the t transcript, still lived in a single wide trailer. And he was, his back door was wired shut. His front door was so insecure that Mr. Bunn could get in with a screwdriver. If he had $3,000 and $100 bills in his trailer, wouldn't he have used it to get a secure lock on his door? I mean, there's no evidence that this man lived that kind of lifestyle. And the state specifically asked its witnesses, did Mr. Davis carry large amounts of cash? What it should have asked was, did you know Mr. Davis to have $100 bills? Did you know him to have thousands of dollars in his possession? They don't ask that. And a large amount of cash is a very subjective 
phrase. I mean, to Elon Musk, I can't imagine what a large amount of cash might be. But if you're living a subsistence life, uh, and one of his daughters says she has a seasonal job, and the other one is sitting at home, she's 58 years old, and she's expecting her father to come give her 20 bucks or something in the morning, to, to that level, and I know this sounds horrible to, to even say something like that, but to those people, a large amount of cash isn't necessarily $3,000. It could be, you know, $100. You could look at a wallet with lots of 20 bills and think it's a large amount of cash. In order for the state to get beyond suspicion and conjecture to what you want, a reasonable inference, a bright line, they needed to ask, did you see your father, did you see Mr. Davis with $100 bills? Did you see him with a lot of $100 bills? Because there are a lot of $100 bills and $3,000. Charlotte lived right next door to him in the trailer park. She must have been in his trailer. Nobody asked her, did, did you ever see your father have $100 bills stacking up to $3,000 in his trailer. So that doesn't get beyond your bright line. It's not a reasonable inference, I'm sorry. It's, um, it's a guess, it's suspicion. The money, he, Mr. Dover, his money that we all think he shouldn't have, but there's no indication that Mr. Davis ever had that money. And Mr. Dover is probably not a saint. His record shows that he had larcenies, but he didn't have violent prior convictions. There's no indication that he ever, and he'd been a drug addict for a long time, that he had ever assaulted anyone in order to get money from them. Uh, the, the state makes a big deal out of well, he didn't say where he was in his first interrogation with the police. Well, one thing we know about Mr. Dover is he's on probation because he goes to the probation officer the next day. And, I mean, just imagine you're on probation. The police have called you in. Is the first thing you're going to say to them, I spent my night at a drug house trying to hook up with prostitutes? And probation is revoked the minute that comes out of his mouth. So he might have been hiding things because of guilt, but what he was guilty of was doing drugs, which is a crime in North Carolina. So to expect him to say the truth about that. Um, well, if you're taking um, his concealment of his whereabouts and activities on that night, um, in the light most favorable to the state, what is reasonable to infer? Well, that he was trying to hide something. It's well, you have to also look at the other evidence. And the proprietor of the drug house with the prostitutes <coughs> testifies that he was there three or four times that night, came in the first time so covered with grease from working on a car that Mr. Holtzclaw 
wouldn't even let him sit on a chair. He went and got a metal chair and made him sit on that because he was so greasy and dirty and told him he wasn't going to get a woman looking like that, go home and wash up. So he went home and washed up and came back and uh, came back again a little bit later. In the morning, he comes back with his girlfriend. Uh, so in the light most favorable to the state, we know where he was part of that evening, at least two or three times. He was doing drugs. And I don't think it's a reasonable inference that he's lying about his whereabouts because he was over at Mr. Davis's trailer um, stabbing him. When we know where he was, he was at the drug house. And it's important to remember when you're weighing this evidence that there should have been forensic evidence. Dr. Owens testifies that in order, when you stab someone that many times, the blood spurts out, you're going to be covered in blood. But they, they didn't find any blood anywhere in his truck. Sure, maybe he threw those clothes out, but he had to get from, if, if he were the one who did it, he would have to drive from Mr. Davis's house back to his house covered in blood. And some of that would have gotten into his Ford truck, and it didn't. They looked as hard as they could. They looked for a weapon. They found a knife in his front yard, and uh, the detective had to admit that they examined that knife. There was no blood on it. So when you put all the evidence together that they didn't have, uh, and that the state admits they didn't have, and even the court, trial court wants to flip it to pr for Mr. Dover to have to prove where he got that money, and that's all presume he got it illegally, but not from Mr. Davis. He got it either from drugs or stealing from Terry's auto sales or um, getting it from clients. Then the state does not get, pat, get to the point of reasonable inference. It's all conjecture and suspicion. Uh, I've only got four minutes left, and I would like to, uh, on the second issue, in my opinion, this court does not have jurisdiction on that issue at this point because the majority did not reach it. So in the past when I've seen this happen, if defendant does not prevail on one issue that the majority did decide what happens is, the, is sent back to the Court of Appeals so that the majority can issue its opinion. So um, I don't have any argument on that because I don't believe this court has jurisdiction on that issue at this point. If there are no further questions, Thank you, and I ask you to affirm the Court of Appeals decision. Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal. Yes, just briefly, I want to touch on a few of the things raised. First, uh, there was a question regarding what defendant makes of certain evidence, whether it's in the light, of, in the light most favorable to the state. 
the state cites to State v. Stone, which in part says the defendant's evidence, unless favorable to the state, is not to be taken into consideration for the determination of motion to dismiss uh, for lack of evidence. So that's, that's the, what this court has said before on that issue. The defendant's evidence, unless favorable to the state, is not to be taken into consideration. Uh, and so that's, I, I think that that's the answer when it comes to, and, and of course, defendant in their brief, and I, I don't fault defendant for talking about the circumstances and trying to talk about how, well, maybe those circumstances mean other things other than what the state, what, other than what's in light most favorable to the state. That's, you know, that's, that's what that's there for. But the standard is light most favorable to the state, giving the state all reasonable inferences. And under that standard, the evidence is, is there. I want to talk also about the, uh, the, the talk about whether there were signs of a break-in that night at the uh, victim's uh, residence. So one of the things that I, I don't think that we've, we highlighted enough in our brief was that the, uh, the victim's daughter testified that, there was, that the victim always propped a chair at the front door to help keep folks out. Uh, and so that evidence, uh, there was no other evidence in, in, in the, brought forth in the case that a chair was damaged or broken into. So when the state refers to evidence that um, the, the victim knew the person who killed him, in fact, may have let that person in, uh, part of that is that, that there was no chair damaged or smashed or, or otherwise broken into, at least not that, that we have in the evidence uh, going on. And so that's part of not, not just the screwdriver and, and wiggling the door open, but also that there was no chair propped up against the, the door as well. Uh, and as one, one of the, the, the justices alluded to, the, the victim's back door was wired shut. That evidence is clear. Uh, in terms of the defendant's argument that there's no direct evidence of, of certain things in this case, uh, again, the, the, court the court can consider purely circumstantial evidence. Evidence can be direct or circumstantial or both, and that's out of Winkler at 575. Circumstantial evidence alone may survive a motion to dismiss, even when the evidence does not rule out every hypothesis of innocence, and that's from State v. Stone. So, again, those those points that defendant are are hammering here um, don't 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 overcome uh, don't don't rise to the point that the motion to dismiss should have been granted by the trial court. Can, can uh, I ask you about another case uh, on this topic? And you cite this in your reply brief, but in State v. White. Um, the court goes through all the things you just said, that you know all the evidence is taken in the light most favorable to the state, any contradictions in the evidence are resolved in the favor of the state. Um, and and it, it seems, I don't know if you're, I'm pulling this out, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the facts of that case, but it does seem that it was ver very similar to this case and that the evidence was all circumstantial. Um, and, and there the court said that, and ultimately, the court in State versus White found that the um, circumstantial evidence was not substantial enough to survive the motion to dismiss. And yet there, um, the state was able to show the defendant was in the general vicinity of the home, um, that he had made contradictory statements during the course of the police investigation. Um, they said you could even infer that the defendant was at the home of the deceased when the deceased came to her death. Um, but that those things were not enough to, to go to the jury on whether he was, and again, like this case, the only issue was whether he was the one, it was clear there was a crime committed, that a murder happened. So, so are, do we have to essentially overrule State versus White? No, no, Your Honor, I think that the key distinction between State versus White in this case is motive. Uh, State versus White t uh, talks, and I believe State versus White cites to other cases that talk about 
uh, evidence of opportunity uh, alone isn't sufficient. That's what the Court of Appeals below in this case said about the facts here, at least the majority did. Uh, and, uh, but the distinction here is that Stacey White specifically says, uh, and, and it's, I have it at page 96 to 97 of that, the, of Stacey White, no motive was established for the crime. And here you have, you have all kinds of evidence of motive. Uh, and so I think that that's the distinction. I don't think that it requires an overruling of Stacey White. Uh, you have it, here you have evidence of not just opportunity like you did in Stacey White, but you also have that evidence of motive that you didn't have in State versus White. And, and just going on to the, the, the cases for comparison case sake, um, there's a case that's cited by the defendant, State v. Pridgen, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, and I think that this case is, is more comparable to that case than it is to, to State v. White. In that case, there was no direct I identification of the, the defendant. In that case, um, there was no um, f location of a murder weapon. The, the, the defendant and the, the location of the body weren't consistent, and some other things happened. But the, the evidence that did exist was that there was one eyewitness who saw uh, the victim getting into a car that looked a lot like the uh, defendant's car, uh, driven by someone who looked a lot like the defendant, uh, and also evidence that the defendant had a motive uh, to to want the victim dead in that case. And those are that 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 I may be selling it a little short, Your Honor, but that's those are the key facts in that case, and that's um, that's what got this court to 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 approve that case or approve is not the correct word, but to uh, get past a motion to dismiss, Your Honor. Uh, and so I think that State v. Prison is probably the most comparable case uh, here as opposed to st State versus White. The, la the last thing I wanted to touch about in terms of the large amounts of, of money and the, and the $100 bills was simply that the, the evidence before the trial court and, and, and by, by connection before this court is that the, def uh, the victim was in the business of buying and selling cars, buying and selling used cars. There was a lot of testimony that he carried large, a ca a large amounts of cash for that purpose. And so that adds context when folks say that he had a large amount of cash. You're talking about the cash to buy and sell used cars, uh, which I think is something that, that um, we can make reasonable inferences about, as opposed to uh, you know, leaving it entirely up to, to, as the defendant would say, conjecture. Um, so that's the last uh, thing that I would like to address, unless there are any other questions from the court. Uh, with that said, we, we, the state respectfully requests that the court reverse the majority decision of the Court of Appeals below. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, both counsel. Thank you.